So I, I believe when I was young, I held a belief. Um, the easiest way I could articulate it is I think I believed that the end justified the means. I would have never said that because I knew that would be wrong to say, and I knew it had problems, but somewhere pragmatically that just would have been a practice value. And it wasn't until I really began to study God's word that I understood the tension and the problems with that. And not in the ways that we would think, but in a way that was deeply rooted in my pride and your pride. And it's this, when we think that the end justifies the means, what must happen in our mind for us to act on this is we must trust ourselves to see the end. And as I looked in scripture, I was faced with a humbling reality. I am very short-sighted. I rarely can see past the hour that I live in. I mean, forget the week, especially the year. But even when we see according to our own life how limited our perspective is of the end. And if we've noticed anything these last few weeks as we've been reading through the prophets and how God is at work for the glory of his name to the nations, we're faced with this humbling reality that we are not the subject and that we are a very limited part of this massive sovereign plan. And as we have read this past week in Daniel, we're seeing something really special. We're seeing an example, an example of believers, of God followers, of people who cherish and worship the one true God and take on an eternal viewpoint, trusting God, watch this, in faith beyond what they can see. I don't do that all the time. And so how encouraging it is to go back and see how guys like Daniel did that very thing. And so in these first six chapters of Daniel, we see really a documentary of him and we're going to call them the boys. Daniel and the boys. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. You'll know them that way. And it's kind of a documentary of their time in exile. It's long. It'll go on for a long time. And in 7 through 12, we see these, these like prophetic visions of Daniel. For the sake of this sermon, we're going to stay in those first six chapters. Now, if you have any questions about 7 through 12 and all those prophetic visions, email Pastor Paul. He's ready for you. He's been studying up, and he'll be glad to answer all your questions. But we're just going to walk chapter by chapter through six the first six chapters of Daniel, and catch this story. And as we do, here's what I want you to do. Take really good notes. Listen. We're going to go quickly, but as we go, there are just profound nuggets of wisdom. There are incredible truths, and there are great examples throughout these six chapters. Write them down. Go back to your life group. Go back to your family. Talk about these things. They're incredible. Chapter 1 begins in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim. He's the king of Judah. 
Now, Nebuchadnezzar, who's the king of Babylon and the superpower of the day, is invading and besieging Jerusalem. Now, you're going to remember that a few weeks ago, we saw Ezekiel taken captive with Jehoiakim, not to be confused with Jehoiakim, right? And Jehoiakim is Jehoiakim's father. So this is before Ezekiel and Jehoiakim is taken out of Judah. So this is the first group of really exiles that are going to come out. And Nebuchadnezzar says, bring me, verse 3, bring me some people of Israel, both of royal family and of the nobility, youth without blemish, of good appearance. That would have ruled me out right there. And skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them literature and the language of the Chaldeans, just for the sake of what we're going to talk about, Chaldeans, Babylonians, same people. We're just going to look at it that way. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. And they were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Michelle, Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called Belshazzar, Hananiah, he called Shadrach, Mishael, he called Meshach, and Azariah, he called Abednego. And so right off the bat, we're introduced to Daniel and the boys. Now, they're kind of some subjects that we're going to read about in these first six chapters. They're noble Hebrews. They're guys that would have stood out. They're the best of the best. They are bright. They were a part of important families, and they are exiled. They're taken from their home back to Babylon to serve. But they're going to go through three years of indoctrination, three years of training. They're going to learn the language, the culture, the customs, and they're just going to be taught the ways of Babylon. And then there's going to be a final exam. You come, you stand before the king, and We'll see how you do. And throughout this, they're going to be well cared for. This is part of Babylon's strategy. They're not just enslaving these people to do grunt work. They're trying to take the best and the brightest and really lean into their mind, to their leadership, and put them to work for the good of Babylon. And so they're, they're going to be, again, they're going to be pretty well taken care of. I mean, they're going to eat good food even. But there's a problem. This food does not fall within Israel's food laws. If they eat it, they're going to break, defile themselves, break these food laws that God has established for them. And so in verse 8, Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. This idea resolved, it means that he purposed his stand. Um, for better or worse, it's good to him, he's standing here. Uh, I think a great parallel to that is in 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 12, verse 10. Paul says, for the sake of Christ then, I count it well. I count it well. With weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities, here's what he's saying. 
It does not matter what comes my way. I will stand with Christ and count it well. This is resolve. This is a purpose stand. And Daniel purposes himself to pursue holiness and his relationship with the Lord above the pragmatics of just eating the good food in the foreign land. A few quick observations, all right? These are just, again, things that are just gonna jump out, three of them, really quick, just gonna run through them fast. First, these are general, by the way. First, Daniel valued the pursuit of holiness above pragmatism. That is so profound for our day. Daniel valued the pursuit of holiness, faithfulness, above pragmatism. So many implications to this in our day right now. Second, Daniel came with a solution. This is just some general wisdom stuff. We know the Bible's clear. Daniel is a wise man. And wise people don't just complain and gossip. They don't. They come with solutions. They bring solutions. And not just solutions that are good for them. Daniel doesn't just come say, hey, you need to get a Hebrew chef. That's what you need. And he know, he'll know what to do. That's not what happens here. Daniel comes with a solution with all parties involved. He thinks of a way for him not to defile himself, the chief of the eunuchs, the guy who's over him, not to get in trouble, and a way that's not a lot of work for them to survive. So he says, let's do this. Let's try a 10-day test run, and we'll just eat veggies and water, and we'll see how it turns out. Notice God gave Daniel favor in the sight of his supervisor. It was God who gives favor. Daniel didn't persuade him right? God did this work. It's an important theme throughout the book of Daniel that God is the one who does the work. And so in verse 15, at the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youth who ate the king's food. Now, I don't know how many of you guys have heard about the Daniel plan, the diet plan, but I'm pretty sure they weren't going for fatter in the flesh, right? By the way, listen, if that's the diet you're looking for, come talk to me afterwards. I'll save you money. I'll hook you up. I know how to come about this. It's going to work. But Daniel and his crew, the boys, they eat this, just their veggies and the water, and they turn out and they look better and healthier than everybody else. And so they said, well, let's just keep doing it. And so they go forward, and that's the meal that they eat. And in verse 17, we see this incredible, just continue working in them. He says, as for these youths, God gave them learning and skill and all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. And so third quick observation I want you to just see here really fast is God gave Daniel favor. Throughout all of this, it's not just Daniel and his knowledge and Daniel and his wisdom. It's not that these are guys that are just smarter than everybody else, more talented. It is God working through them. And so in verse 20, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them 10 times better than all the magicians and enchanters 
that were in his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. That's gonna be roughly 70 years later. And so these first six chapters that we're going through, they had stretched through this really the entire exile. Daniel will be taken as a teenager in the beginning of chapter one. And by the time chapter six ends, he's gonna be in his 80s. He's gonna be an old man. This will go through different kings, even a shift in power from Babylon to Persia. He will begin under Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, and he will end under Cyrus, the king of Persia. And so chapter two begins, and Nebuchadnezzar has had a dream, and he's troubled by his dream. And he calls in the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, to ask them to interpret the dream. And Nebuchadnezzar says, hey guys, here's what I want you to do. I need you to tell me what my dream means. By the way, if you don't tell me and you don't get it right, I'm gonna rip you limb to limb. No pressure. And they're like, well, just tell us the dream and you know we'll, we'll interpret it. He goes, nope, not gonna fall for that. You just need to interpret the dream without me telling you the dream. Listen, if you can do it, you can do that. They're, and they're like, no, 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 really, just tell us the dream. He's like, listen, I'm not gonna tell you the dream. You're gonna interpret the dream or you're gonna die. And they respond back in verse 11, and they say, the thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king, except the gods who dwelling is not with flesh. In other words, except for the gods who aren't here. So Nebuchadnezzar says, well, why do I even have you guys? Just kill all of you. All the, all the people of wisdom, all the counselors, all the enchanters, we're just gonna kill all of you. Well, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they're a part of this group. They are the wise counsel. And so Daniel hears of this decision and he goes back to the house and he makes the matter known to the boys. And he says in verse 18, seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, concerning Nebuchadnezzar's dream, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Now notice a few things. It is clear to Daniel that mercy wasn't coming from the king. He did not seek deliverance from the king. It wasn't like, man, I need to just go talk to the king. We, we need to persuade the king. No. Notice deliverance wasn't coming from a scheme. He didn't immediately start planning how he was gonna get out of this. Instead, Daniel recognized that his rescue came from the Lord, so they prayed. They went to the Lord. Verse 19, then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night after they prayed. So then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Verse 20, Daniel answered and said, blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and he sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise for you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me what we ask of you. Now listen, for you 
have made known to us the king's matter. God made known, again, pointing back to him. So you need to notice Daniel holds this groundbreaking big truth that we see throughout these six chapters, that God delivers and rescues. God delivers and rescues. God is supreme, he is sovereign, and he is the ultimate authority. And so with that same truth in mind, Daniel goes before the king and proclaims to Nebuchadnezzar. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Verse 27, Daniel answered the king and said, no wise man, enchanters, magicians, astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries and he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. What a powerful principle. Church, listen, there is no man who can save a soul, but there is a God in heaven who has made himself known. And so Daniel goes on and he interprets the dream that there is a great statue made up of various materials, each representing kingdoms to follow Babylon. And this statue is present, but a great stone beyond human ingenuity strikes the statue and just pulverizes the statue, just destroying it to dust that is carried off in the wind. And then on this great stone that forms a mountain will serve as a foundation for a new kingdom to which Daniel describes in verse 44, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end and it shall stand forever. Nebuchadnezzar recognizes the truth of Daniel's interpretation and his proclamation. And so Daniel and the boys get a promotion. Promotions are great. We like promotions. But there's a problem with promotions. The people who don't get the promotions, they're not usually so happy that we got the promotion. And so that plays itself out immediately in chapter 3. Nebuchadnezzar has made this massive golden image and he's so proud of it. I mean, he's just thrilled by this image. And so he decides we need to have a dedication for my new golden image. We need to worship it. And so they come up with this plan. We're gonna play a bunch of music. When the music starts, here we go. Woo, we're gonna bow down before the golden image and we're going to worship. Now this time, Daniel's not found in this. It's just Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. There's speculation about where Daniel's at during this time, but we Recognize he's not present in chapter three. And so, of course, everything goes as it is planned and organized. There is the music, there is the statue, and all the people bow down and worship, except the boys. Well, you realize when you look into verse eight that the haters have seized the opportunity to make much of it. So it's like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the beginning of this are just kind of flying under the radar. 
But oh man, there's those people that are still jealous. And aren't they so quick to point you out? (laughs) And so they point over there at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they say to Nebuchadnezzar, hey, verse 12, these men, O king, they pay no attention to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you've set up. So Nebuchadnezzar in his pride is filled with rage. I've declared this. How, how dare you defy what I have declared? We're going to do this again, and you're going to worship or you're going to burn. We're going to throw you in the fiery furnace if you do not bend the knee and worship to the statue that I have created. And he says in verse 15 to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and who is the God who will deliver you out of my hand? Now you have to understand something about Nebuchadnezzar. He is legit the most powerful man on the planet, leading the superpower of the world. He has reason to feel pretty high on himself and his authority. And he says, who is gonna save you? Who's gonna come in and rescue you? And also notice this, by the way, again, just some general practical wisdom as we go through. Our private stance will lead to a public test. And our public test will lead to future shaping consequences. It's usually the way it works. Lots of times we're pretty good with our private stance. But when our private stance becomes public, and now it brings with it the consequences of that public stance, that's when we begin to backpedal. It's so much easier in private to take a stand in a small circle, but as that gets larger and larger and the consequence gets greater, we're tempted to backpedal. But here, the boys answered Nebuchadnezzar, verse 16, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, if you throw us into the furnace, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. Our God is able. Verse 18. But if not, if he doesn't deliver us, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Notice God is able. Able over the greatest power of the world, able over physical impossibility. He is able. They don't know if he will. They don't know if he should, but they know he is able. They know he can. They know he is powerful. And so they also recognize something, that regardless whether he does rescue them or not in this moment, he is the only God worthy of worship. When we read this section of scripture, because some of us are, you know, from East Tennessee, I'm from East Tennessee, our redneck comes out a little bit, and we like, yeah, tell that Nebuchadnezzar. I don't care what happens. I'm not bowing before you. And we kind of like, like that. It's that East Tennessee redneck. Now, to listen, I know some of you guys. You can just look at me and stare. I know some of you. You got some of that redneck in you. And so you think, man, this is cool. They're just bowing up against Nebuchadnezzar. I'm not going to bend the knee. That's not what's happening. 
It is the recognition that regardless what happens, there is only one God worthy of worship. It's not just some like pride in them that's pushing back. It's saying if our God slay us, he is still the only true God. And he is still the only supreme being worthy of worship. It is a declaration about who God is. And so they heat up the furnace seven times its usual heat. They throw him in. And in verse 25, Nebuchadnezzar says, I see four men unbound walking in the midst of the fire. And they are not hurt. And the appearance of the fourth is like the sun of the gods. And in verse 27, everyone gathers together and they begin to look upon the three. And they saw that the fire had no power over the bodies of those men. The hair of their heads was not singed, their cloaks were not harmed, and no smell of fire had come upon them. And so Nebuchadnezzar praised God and promoted the boys. Chapters four and chapters five kind of run parallel. They emphasize the same reality, the same theme, that God is greater than Babylon, that God is greater than the kings of earth, that he is the one who is ultimately in control. And so chapter four documents Nebuchadnezzar being humbled before the Lord. See, Nebuchadnezzar had Man, he had grew in power and fame. There was no kingdom like Babylon. There is no one like him in the world. And his pride also began to grow. And so God humbled Nebuchadnezzar. He lost his mind. He lost the kingdom. And he showed Nebuchadnezzar that he was in fact the servant. That Nebuchadnezzar wasn't the ruler. Nebuchadnezzar was never the king. Nebuchadnezzar was never sovereign or supreme. That he was the servant of the one true God. And as this reality became clear to Nebuchadnezzar through the revelation and the power of the work of God in his life, God then restores him. Which if you really think about it, that's a crazier act than taking the kingdom from him. Is after it's been taken, after he's been stripped away to nothing, to then come back and restore him is just an incredible act of the Lord. And so in verse 37, Nebuchadnezzar said, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. For all his works are right and his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. And so chapter five, we pick up with Belshazzar. And it's a very similar situation. Belshazzar is really the eldest son of Babylon's last recognized king. He's really in this stage where the Persians are just taking over. The Medes are taking over. It's, it's, it's done. The kingdom has fallen. And he's an ancestor here of Nebuchadnezzar and this kingdom of Babylon that had reigned. And Daniel comes before him to interpret another vision. And in verse 18, he says, O king, of the most high God, 
gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, kingship and greatness and glory and majesty. Notice who gave Nebuchadnezzar his kingship. Verse 19, and because of the greatness that he gave him, all peoples, nations, language trembled and feared before him. Whom he would, he killed, and whom he would, he kept alive. Whom he would, he raised up, and whom he would, he humbled. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened so that he dealt proudly, he was brought down from his kingly throne and his glory was taken from him. He was driven from among the children of mankind and his mind was made like that of a beast. His dwelling was with the wild donkeys. He was fed grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven. Listen, until he knew that the most high God rules the kingdom of mankind and sets over it whom he will. Let that truth sink in. We need that truth to like hit us today. Really make sure you get what's being said here. God rules over the kingdom of mankind and sets over that kingdom the man who he wills. Daniel goes on and says, Belshazzar, the same is true for you. You have turned to pride. Babylon, you have grown proud, and now your kingdom ends. And let it be known, God rules, not Babylon. And in verse 30, that very night, Belshazzar, the Chaldean king, was killed, and Darius the Mede received the kingdom, being about 62 years old. We transition into chapter six with this shift from Babylon toward Persia. And Darius sets up a new leadership structure. He sets up 120 governors and then three people over those 120 governors. And one of those three is Daniel. And he, he's really fond of Daniel. Daniel's a great leader. He likes Daniel. It's good. But other people didn't like this so much. I mean, Daniel's still a foreigner after all. This is a pretty high role. And by the way, just, this is also random, but just make note of this. Daniel and the boys aren't usually liked by their peers. That's a common theme throughout most of the scripture, probably more common than we realize, but the people who are faithful, the prophets, the people who are proclaiming God's word, they're usually not very popular guys. And we tend, I think, in our culture to confuse that with being above reproach, but that's not what above reproach means. Above reproach doesn't mean everyone likes you. Above reproach means that, man, when they maliciously throw things at you, they really won't stick in front of objective counsel. And that's what's happening here with Daniel. These guys, there's this kind of, they don't like them, they wanna get rid of them, but there's nothing that will really hold up in front of objective counsel, in front of this king who likes them. It's, it, it's just kind of malicious, it's, it's kind of gossipy, maybe there's something there, but nothing that will really hold. And so they set a trap. And they 
convinced Darius to say, listen, let's sign a law that no one can pray for 30 days except you, king. And if they do, we'll throw them into the lion's den. And Darius signs it into law, a law that cannot change. And in verse 10, when Daniel knew that the document had been signed, he went into his house where he had the windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. Darius found, finds out, the king finds out, because people are telling on Daniel pretty quick, right? And he's so distressed because, again, he, he, he likes Daniel. Daniel's a, a great servant for the kingdom. And he studies to think, how can I deliver Daniel? Notice something. The king, most powerful empire in the world, most powerful man alive, wants to deliver Daniel, but he can't. He can't. And so he commands Daniel to be thrown in with the lions. And remember this, by the way, Daniel here is like 70, 80 years old. I mean, he's more likely to be like break a hip falling into the pit than he is this like strapping muscular young man you've got in your cartoons. And so they throw Daniel into the lion's den. And the next morning, the king comes back, verse 20, O Daniel, servant of the living God, has your God, whom you serve continually, been able to deliver you from the lions? Here's the question. Has your God been able to do what the most powerful man on the planet could not do? Verse 21, then Daniel said to the king, O king, live forever. My God sent an angel and shut the lion's mouth. And they have not harmed me because I was found blameless before them. And also before you, O king, I have done no harm. Then the king was exceedingly glad and commanded that Daniel be taken up out of the den. So Daniel was taken up out of the den and no kind of harm was found on him because he had trusted in his God. And the king commanded, and those men who had maliciously accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of lions, they, their children, and their wives. And before they reached the bottom of the den, the lion overpowered them and broke all their bones into pieces. Quick side note, notice malicious attackers often win the first battle. I want to remind you of that because, listen, as a church, be careful when you decide to jump in with the malicious gossip. Be careful when you think you know a lot more than you know and you're going to speak in and jump in with a group of people who are attacking somebody else. It might look like you're winning early, but you might have a short-sighted view of the end. And so... Here in this incredible moment, our main point, our big truth, God delivers and rescues. And it's not just Daniel who sees this, but King Darius. And in verse 25, King Darius wrote to all the peoples, the nations, and the languages that dwell in all the earth. Remember? 
the glory of God to the nations. God works for his glory to the nations. All of this building up to this moment in every language, in every tongue, throughout all of the nations and the reach of the greatest empire on the planet, the king proclaims, peace be multiplied to you. I make a decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble and fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. And proclaimed to the nations, verse 27, he delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lion. And so Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus, the Persian. God delivers and rescues. That is a huge truth. A couple of quick implications, big ideas, and then we're going to move into a time of response in the Lord's Supper. First, God is worthy of our faith. God delivers and rescues, and he is worthy of our faith. He can even if I don't know how. Daniel resolved, he purposed in his heart. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego deemed him able. Even the heathen kings deemed him the living God. And so in the face of great loss and great opposition, do you resolve in faith to him? I want you to be reminded Be reminded as you read through Daniel, he is worthy of your faith. Second big idea, God is worthy of our trust. He will even if I don't know when. Remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? They said, listen, if you throw us into the fiery furnace, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But remember verse 18, but if not, man, that's a powerful statement. But if not, be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. But if not, and if we burn, and if we lose our life, you need to know he is still the only God worthy of worship. Here's what's being modeled there. A trust and a faith to an end beyond what they can see. It is an end beyond what they can see. See, we are greatly tempted to be short-sighted, to trust in the end that we can see, But faith celebrates an end beyond our sight. And trust anchors in the God who is eternal. Who promises that he is at work for our good. And so as we celebrate the Lord's Supper I want to remind you of one more passage that I hope that just in the spirit will connect this. And I want it to encourage you this week, a week where I feel like we are stretched thin and distracted and all over the place. 1 John chapter five, verse four. 
For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. You overcome. You're victorious. Regardless what happens. And this victory that has overcome the world, it's our faith. It's our faith. Verse five, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the son of God? May we rest in the truth of who God is beyond what we see. May we not so quickly choose pragmatics that we set aside our faith and our trust. And may we be reminded, people of God, that he and he alone is the deliverer and the one who rescues. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, you are good. You are worthy of our worship. And you and you alone are worthy of worship. Father, I pray that we would be encouraged, not just in our emotions, but in the truth of who you are. I pray that it would bring us to a place of worship, a place of recognition, that regardless what happens in our day, we might have the resolve of Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego that we might recognize you and you alone are the deliverer. I'm gonna pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.